Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. I'm the kind of person who thinks recipes are not there and they're not designed to replicate something perfectly. They're there to invite people into an experience. Recipes are mostly about memory. And so every one of these recipes is stamped with a day, a, a day, the day it was created. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Jason Hamill is the executive chef and owner of award-winning Lula Cafe in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood. Jason grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, and is the product of a tight Italian family. He studied writing at Brown University and then traveled to Italy where an accidental stay in an apartment above a produce market left a lasting impact and led to his life as a chef. On this episode, we hear about the 24-year run of Lula Cafe and how Jason's instinct to write blends with his culinary background for a really unique point of view. We also talk about his debut cookbook, the Lula Cafe cookbook, which I just love. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason. Jason Hamill, welcome to This is Taste. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Really great to great to a- meet avid you. Avid listener. Oh, thanks, man. I, I appreciate. It. We were just talking about Chandra's episode in Schwa. Of Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Just we were just talking about how Schwa is kicking it still, yeah. and just saw Michael recently, and what a great guy he is. Yeah, listener. In a couple episodes back, um, I was talking to Chandra about Schwa and how it echoes the bear in in my brain, perhaps. And Jason, we can talk about that that television show, but it is open. It is. It is. And and doing great stuff still. Really excited. So let's let's talk about brunch. Um, tell me about what was the last brunch service you worked? Because your restaurant, Lula, is a real favorite of mine and Chicago and just a legendary place. Uh, just celebrated 24 years. Congrats. Thank you. So this what was your last? on Saturday. Uh, Sunday. Uh, <laughs> I work every brunch service and I typically expedite uh, the busy, busy services. You know, it's a hard expediting, uh, you know, uh, gig, very difficult, probably one of the hardest around. And uh, there are just a few of us who can get through, a, you know, five, 600 person brunch. 600 covers. It you, can happen, yes. Because you've got this massive, this dining room with it's airy and beautiful and lots of windows. And then you've got this massive front, you know, garden yeah. patio area. It, it's, I mean, it's over the years, we started very small. In 99, we had just, you know, under a thousand square feet. And then we just sort of took over adjacent spaces over the years. So now it's kind of like a labyrinth of rooms and, you know, we have the outdoor and, but there is a big line at nine o'clock when we open. Yep. So we'll do, I think, you know, we'll do like 120 covers in the first hour, just like, just, uh, you know, flat sat, just crazy start, you know, kind of have to think about swinging before the ball gets thrown <laughs> in a way, you know what I mean? Um, so you start cooking even before people sit down. You must have like a warm up lap. Oh, we do. We we just well, yeah. We just start cooking before start I, cooking at six. Before it even seven. happens. Yeah. Now you on Instagram mentioned the show The Bear um, and service, and I'd like to get your sense uh, about that show. 
Um, it really does seem to many uh, that it is representing not just the food industry, but Chicago well. What is your take, though, Jason? My take is it's an excellent show. I think, um, I mean, first of all, I have a lot of friends who are on the show, both, you know, literally that made cameos, but also behind the scenes. A former pastry chef of mine uh, was the you know, genius behind the chocolate cake, who now has her own place called Loaf Lounge. Um, and Coco did an amazing job with the food. I think this is my take. I'm not from Chicago, but I've lived there for 30 years. I'm actually from New Haven. Mm. Um, I think that those people who try to find the fault in the betrayal um, are really being nitpicky. It is an incredibly evocative and like and real feeling of Chicago to me. And then the food scenes and the restaurant scenes are are deep and nuanced in a way that we just haven't seen in uh, in food TV before. I think it's brilliantly done. The casting is brilliant, and uh, it brought a lot of thought for me about emotional labor, both on the service and in the in the back front and back of the house, and what that means what that does to people who work, who care for others, who want to care for others and struggle to care for themselves. And uh, it, it has a lot to say about that. And I'm really interested in where they take the, you know, the next season. Um, I, it left, you know, Carmi in such a, you know, a, a troubled spot. Uh, but it's a troubled spot that so many of us have been in yeah. over our lives. Like what to choose, family over work, you know, um, career, you know, with the whole, all the pressures of the career and what kinds of stress it puts on. Do you recognize you. those characters? Do you recognize Carmi? Do you recognize? I recognize them in myself, you know. Yeah. I, I've struggled with how to care for myself and how to care for others um, yeah. my whole, you know, the whole career. It's a, it's tough, you know. You Caring for others is what we do. And it's the, the primary uh, role of a owner or manager is to care for others. The others in this case being the team. Right. Team first, you know, giving, finding them the right resources, finding them um, the ways to support them in their work so that they can then in turn care for right. the other people in the in the room. But caring is not something that's just like innate or natural. It's just like you don't have like a well of just, you know, infinite Well, especially care. when you have like you're using fire and very sharp objects. There's not a lot of like care and, and that's a very hard industry and it, hard environment. 100%. It's stressful. I mean, look at what, I mean, the expedite, we just talked about expediting. Like some of the best parts of the bear for me were just looking at the pressure of one person having to organize that whole yeah. like chaotic uh, environment. And that's what happens when I'm working Sunday brunch. I mean, I'm in front of, you know, 50 tickets and they all have to be organized. You have yeah. to call them out and and say them in a way that'll engage the team without, you know, um, without frightening them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't mean like, come on, let's go. You know, it's a, it's a big uh, responsibility. And uh, one of our funniest moments recently was uh, after that episode and uh, season two came out when uh, you know, the expediting happens at the you know, it's the last episode. It was super busy Sunday brunch. I had, you know, again, like 50 tickets and I'm yelling and yelling and my, my Apple watch is warning me to like slow my breathing. Oh my gosh, to, that's uh, amazing. Get out into a different, less, uh, noisy environment. <laughs> and, uh, I just pick up my red pen. I look over my front of the house manager. I'm like, Hey cuz got this. I gotta oh, go. And you. You know, we all started laughing. Oh, that's a good, I mean, in the moment meta and, and great and clearly you're living, living your truth here on, on the show, on our show. So I appreciate you sharing. Um, 
also like that spider kid smoke needle drop in the episode. So yeah, great. It's amazing. It's just like the, the the music in that show just doesn't get enough credit. And I feel as a Chicagoan, you hear a lot of, you hear some great things, right? You do. And music from, I mean, for Lula is a, yeah. is a central part of, uh, of our identity. My wife, Leah, and I started the restaurant together. She's a musician. Yep. She's been in bands and from Chicago, been in bands for years. And the music, you know, the scene there um, in the 90s was, I mean, it was so important in my life, like going out to shows and seeing, you know, whoever came through, mm-hmm. but also just the local acts. And then the musicians in our neighborhood that come to the restaurant regularly, um, you know, I was just talking to someone about uh, Bob Weston, who's in, uh, is a you know producer and um, and uh, musician and was in, is the bassist in Shellac. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, like that guy was just at the, bar yesterday on Sunday when I was expediting like he's a good friend and he's a creative you know a center of uh of music and creativity in Chicago and there's all sorts of people like that Tort- just, tortoise and oh yeah and seeing cake like seeing shout cake. out to those guys yeah absolutely that's that's the Lula crowd yeah I know and and I've, I've been there and I have friends who work at Metro for years and it's it feels like Lula is is an extension of this super unique industry uh, music industry in Chicago it's like just the beating heart. It is a beating heart. So 99, so early, I mean, 24 years and, um, you know, early, like 90s Chicago, you tap, you just mentioned this, but I want to get into how, how is Chicago in the 90s such a formative time for food in America? I feel like you have a thesis, you've you lived it, you know the industry, but I'd like to get your take on how this time, because I really do think um, a lot of the food culture in our country was informed by the Midwest, specifically Chicago at this period. Oh, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, because all of us were looking at California. Yeah. You know, at that time, I think the discovery of the Midwest as a bountiful place is the story of the, you know, 90s, early 2000s Chicago food scene. Like recognizing that you didn't have to look to, you know, the the specialty vegetables, the California cuisine, the, you know, purple potatoes and the, <laughs> you know, scarlet turnips are getting shipped from somewhere else or the chef's, you know, nothing against chef's garden, but like those kinds of places. And looking just around us and seeing like oh, we literally have some of the best produce and uh, in the country. And we were just talking before we went on air about Michigan fruit. Yeah. I mean, there's no like Michigan fruit is is, you know, above uh, above, you know, just up so perfect in so many specific cases like i'm talking about berries blueberries and and raspberries but like grapes you don't think about grapes and the grape season in in michigan is just short and precious but beautiful like it's really uh gorgeous um plums etc so i mean us discovering that bounty not that people weren't growing those things and enjoying them but recognizing it as a, a sort of like a local treasure that you could celebrate um, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is the building of that community. Um, Chicago is unique in that, um, and chefs seem to be connected very closely and willing to help each other. Yeah, share resources, recipes, information, et cetera, in a way that, from what I've heard, is not always happening in other cities like it should. Um, so that community, early community, was very tight, and then you know people just kind of grew up in it once the tree is healthy you know it it grows um and so that's where i think a lot of the yeah you know the out, outreach and what's happened now comes from. I, I think of folks like uh, Charlie Trotter. I think of Grant Atkins at Alinea. I think about you. I think about Intelligentsia starting yeah. there in '94. Paul Kahn. Paul Kahn, of course. Um, you you these names, but when you look at the size of the city, you know you're punching well above your weight in terms of the the, the size of the city. Um, let me ask you: Was there a moment that you felt Chicago um, dipped 
at all in the past 25 years and it has come back? Because I feel maybe that's happened. I mean, I... I, you know, when, when you're in the fight, I don't think you see the, the larger, you yeah. know, uh, dips in, uh, in that way. I do think we have a challenge now, um, post pandemic to really, um, create models that work for, uh, you know, us sustainably. I, I mean, that's the truth for, uh, around the country. Um, and I, I do think that the challenge of the community is to come together and understand what we should do as a you know, as a unit, as a singular unit in the city to to create new opportunities and new models for, you know, sustainability and success. So we might be in that dip right now. Interesting. You know I was I mean? thinking the opposite, but that's just my, I live in New York 20 years. So I feel like right now Chicago is is hitting a stride unlike I've ever witnessed. Oh, that, I mean, creatively. Yeah. On the creative side, for sure. Yeah. We have Kasama. And, Kasama, and right. And Obelix and, and those restaurants. Yes. I mean, those are young and, and hungry places. But the city as a whole, like we really need to come together and under. I mean, there's some challenges. We have some farming challenges. Yeah. We've lost to some farms the last couple of years. So we need to see what what new support is coming up, so that this creativity, mm-hmm. like Obelix, Kasama, et cetera, really Bev Kim and Johnny flirt. Clark. Oh my God, their restaurants. Yeah, my favorite restaurant. Parachute and Parachute is literally my favorite restaurant. That's cool. I, I love Parachute too. I think it's a great. It's restaurant. It's brilliant. Um, I want to get into more Chicago and some of your your favorite restaurants because we use this show as an opportunity to to, to shout out uh, restaurants for our listeners to visit. But I want to hear a little bit about your history, Jason, about coming to Chicago from the East Coast. How did you get into food? Like, what's your journey there? Oh man, it's a it's a story. Um, so I wanted to be a writer. Um, I went to school on the East Coast. I wanted to go to graduate school to be a creative writer um, to you know study fiction and fiction writing. Um, and, uh, I got into a program in normal Illinois. Um, at the time my professor in college was like, you need to work with this young writer. He's got two books out. You're really going to, you know, learn a lot from him. And the only downside is you have to go live in normal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and you know, I had no idea what the Midwest was like. I I really hadn't been West in New York city at that point. Um, and I drove out to normal, uh, and studied with David Foster Wallace for two years. Oh my gosh. I knew you're, you're, you're winding up. I, I was like winding a good storyteller. Um, so I studied there and was writing and I, you know, quickly realized I had a lot of work to do as a writer. Um, I finished the program and moved to Chicago, which is, you know, two hours North. Um, in the interim between schools, I lived in Italy for a little while and one of the things that I talk about in uh, our cookbook is like what I was exploring then was I'm from an Italian family from the East Coast. Uh, I was kind of exploring how that the erosion of that identity, you know, it's been several generations. There are certain things that are like really meaningful and real that are, you know, from the old world, so to speak. But they're they're eroding. They're, they're sort of, you know, falling apart um, over the generations just, to, you know, through no one's fault, but just time and uh, and space. And so I was kind of exploring that, you know, the tension of old world and new in the writing. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to go to Italy, learn Italian and like, just see what this is like. So I was there for a while. And I, and that is where I really realized like how central food was to both like my history Mm. and also the writing that I wanted to do. So I literally started writing about food. Um, and in so doing studying cookbooks, you know, Elizabeth David is a favorite of mine. Um, 
And that's where I kind of learned to cook. I didn't have any, uh, you know, hand-on experience. Um, I lived in Italy for a while and then came to normal. So went from Bologna mm. to normal. Oh, Emilia Romagna, nice yeah, place yeah. to land in, oh, yeah. in Italy yeah. in the 90s. I'm sure it was, I mean, very different. Than it was now. It was cool. Yeah. And I still brought some of that 90s music. You know, I, <laughs> I saw um, PJ Harvey in a, like, uh, discotheque in a, field of wheat out, you know, somewhere yeah. in Emilia Romagna in the, oh. in the mid nineties. That was amazing. Uh, I still went to shows and stuff. Yeah. Um, but then I, you know, when I moved to Chicago, um, I got a job as a cook. Um, and the cooking was really just about money. I turned to the guy next to me in graduate school and was like, what do you do for money? Mm. I mean, my, one of my first jobs was at like this off brand California pizza kitchen. I worked at TGI Fridays, yeah. like anywhere, oh, normal, nice. That's anywhere normal I could work. Spot to get reps in at TGI. Oh my God! Yes. Yeah. I mean, don't, yeah. Don't knock that. I would I mean, never. They, they they had systems and yeah. uh, controls that you know I, I learned a lot from. Work at TGI Fridays and Starbucks. Work at those two places and learn. It's like Absolutely. your grad school for for, for food for sure. And you you learn a lot about you know the sort of politics of the yeah. line and everything. <laughs> right. So that's what I did when I was in graduate school, and then in in Chicago I got a job as a cook. But the interesting thing is, on my first day in the city, I moved to Logan Square. And I had heard about this cafe. I was a big cafe, you know, cafes were essential to my life, big cafe goer. I uh, love to bring a, you know, book uh, and do some writing in cafes. So on the first day I went to Logan Beach Cafe mm. uh, with my girlfriend at the time. Where's there a beach in Logan Square? I will tell you in just a second. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to spoil. <laughs> and uh, on the very first day I was there um, with uh, my ex-girlfriend now, Leah. Uh, we looked up at the chalkboard menu and it said Leah's Soup. And in that moment, I was looking at my wife's menu, my wife-to-be, inside of the space that would become Lula. So the Logan Beach Cafe was the original cafe before Lula was there. My wife, Leah, was a cook there. Uh, I eventually started hanging out, and uh, that was my like core group of friends. And we eventually took it over, me and, mm-hmm. and Leah Childs. So uh, that was my first day there. And Logan Beach was named uh, because... The old men used to sit their um, sun chairs out on the on the sidewalk outside of uh, a cigar shop that was on the corner there. Smoke cigars, do the whole like poly walnuts. Oh thing. my gosh! It's like I, li- I, grew- I lived in Carroll Gardens for seventeen years, and those were like fixtures of our neighborhood. Yeah, that's why it was called Logan Beach. I love that. Yeah, it was a literal beach in the middle of the city. Before we get to the evolution of Lula, I want to go back and actually ask you about David Foster Wallace. Uh, did you have any 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 food exchanges with with your professor, your young professor? Yes, I, I feel I like had two. Great. Um, the first one was that I bought brought a vegetarian barbecue option to his barbecue at his house, and uh, I got kind of made fun of for it. Like he he was like, "Oh, I already always <laughs> I always knew you were sensitive." <laughs> It's like, what does that mean? You're sensitive because you bring a veg- vegetable, you know, uh, skewer to grill on your grill. Um, the other, the other was the last time I saw him was at this uh, sort of red sauce joint in in Normal, and I ordered the meat uh, option of I think ravioli, and he was kind of like, "Wait, I thought you were a vegetarian," <laughs> and I was like, "David, I've never been a vegetarian." He's like, "But I thought you were sensitive," you know. It, it was this recurring theme. Beautiful dovetail callback. Yes, exactly. I love it. Did you did you get a sense that he was uh, going to have a career in food writing and, and write some pretty like legendary? <laughs> I, he sh- he could have. Uh, yeah. He, yeah. He he wasn't a big. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he would have grown into that. But from what I knew, he was a pretty simple eater. Yeah. Uh, so you take over uh, the Logan Beach. Logan Cafe. Beach. We took it over. And 
you're saying it's a small space. What's your opening menu like then? So, I mean, it was very 90s, you know, espresso eggs. Do you remember that kind of thing? I do. Yeah. I absolutely do. Yeah, absolutely. We had a baked portobello mushroom with, oh. goat, with you know, goat cheese and pesto. It's um, You know, and on the side you can get fruit, and the fruit had, like, kiwi and pineapple and strawberries on the side. Sprouts were Yeah, sprou- sprouts out. were everywhere. Uh, yeah, in Kalamazoo in the 90s, I grew up in, like, a place to eat merches that had, like, sprouts everywhere. I think, like, California, as you mentioned, the opening inspired a lot of this 90s cooking. Absolutely. Yeah, that was what we did. Vegetable sushi, you know. I oh, was, yeah. Oh, yeah, we had that. I mean, were you taking joy in the cooking or were you taking joy in the in the people part of the cooking? 100% not the cooking. The When we opened up, it was to protect a space that mattered yeah. to us. It was about um, the neighborhood, our friends. I mean, I I was in my mid-20s. The cafe meant everything to me. I, you know, all of the friends that I had there, they were musicians and filmmakers. And I found out, I mean, obviously, this is my social network to, you know, to use a contemporary term. It was it was where I went every day to mm. to connect with people. And that was what was uh, what we were preserving. As soon as we were, you know, chefs with a restaurant, um, then we were like, oh, we have to learn how to cook. <laughs> um, so uh, then that's when all the cookbooks came in. I bought La Technique. I bought, you know, uh, in the Charlie Trotter books were really important to me. And then I, you know, especially vegetables, that was sort of like what opened up my mind to the idea of like seasonality in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, And we, I just went down this huge rabbit hole. You know, I found out where Trotter bought his vegetables. I went to the vegetable market where he, you know, where he uh, would go and I asked to be let in and just like digging through the the same refrigerator that uh, Charlie uh, Trotter did. And then once the market opened, it was like meeting Paul Kahn. Where do you get your pork from? Where do you, and I would just buy things. And I have no idea how to make them. And then I figured out, you know, through reading. And all this work was being done within those walls. Those four walls. You weren't ever externing. No. You weren't learning. That's no, cool. I just, it, it was all self-taught. Super all cool. The, you know, I mean, we were slow. We were mostly yeah. selling coffee drinks. Yeah. People were smoking and listening to music. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lee and I would make like four orders of like a lamb shank dish. And then... We'd hang out and we'd be drinking wine. It was like fourteen dollars. Yeah, it was probably like eight dollars. Yeah, right. And uh, and then someone'd be like, "Hey, you know, order fire lamb shank," and I'd make the one that I made that night. You know, were you aware of what was happening in Madison at the time? Uh, at, not, at, at, up up at like uh, La Toile and and at the night like that scene. Uh, soon after, I discovered you know um, the sort of burgeoning farm to table movement and, yeah. and and learned about. Um, the farms. The farms really connected me to Madison, especially yeah. some of those uh, shooting star farms. Yeah. Some of the ones from uh, Wisconsin were really important to me. Now, let me ask you, you're definitively Gen X, like definitively Gen X. And did you ever have a moment where you were like like thinking about the sellout moment and like fighting it as like an operator needing to make money but not making too much money? Because I feel our listeners might not actually – connect with Gen X because it was a moment of like sellout is is like cancer is like the, uh, the thing you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one ever offered. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's an easy I mean, that's an easy way. <laughs> I, I had never had a real big sellout moment. I, I mean, I could, uh, we're so busy. I could just decide to buy everything from Cisco for two years and make a bunch of money Definitely. and, and, uh, and, and <laughs> cash it in. Um, no, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like the, the, the success that we've had has in part, been about the origin, the fact that we didn't have to like take out a big loan. We just sort of entered into this, um, into this space. Um, it was super scrappy. I mean, we had, we had nothing. We had like a tiny little sink, no hood, a <laughs> home refrigerator. You know, it was really scrappy, thrifted plates. We went to a bowling alley that was going out of business and bought their chairs, you know, 
it was under I mean, the whole thing was under ten thousand dollars wow. of expense to get it open and running the first, you know, the first year. And when you have no debt and you put in a lot of sweat equity, mm-hmm. meaning like you know, seventeen hours a day for your first, you know, ten years, um, you can make something of, yeah, you know, a, of a space. And that's what happened with Lula. And you grew it to six hundred covers on a Sunday. Uh huh. Yeah. So I business mean, is pretty good now. I mean, we're great. We're super yeah. busy. We've always been. I mean. Uh, it's a it's a miracle to me to like look to you know go there every Saturday and Sunday and see this line forming and I I always try to be like okay don't take this for granted um, and especially the pandemic really made me realize like don't take don't take this for granted yeah your bank you account was certainly this. hit I mean yeah sure. and you just and also just the idea of like well maybe it won't come back you yeah. know this is the thing that chefs and owners always worry about like maybe you'll lose this thing maybe you won't be popular anymore maybe there's something else will open up that's mm-hmm. uh, or maybe you just lose your you know you lose your um, whatever good karma has come your way. Um, and the realization that that could happen, I mean, f- from an outside force, like a real thing that happened and we closed for so long. Now, when I see those people lining up, like I'm, you know, even more grateful for them every every day. And it's not just brunch. I feel like we're focusing on such oh, a small part. Oh yeah, we're super busy at dinner. Too. Dinner and and we have, we've been really void of food talk on this, on this, co- on this conversation. So yeah. I want to get your sense of like, th- what is on your brunch menu? Because when I was there, I just remember the pastry case and just what you were serving was so mm-hmm. excellent. Um, I've been blessed to have great pastry chefs. Um, I mean, amazing. Uh, Kim Janice is our pastry chef now. I mean, she's doing, um, I you know, there. she loves, she's from New York, by the way. And uh, we do a lot of like Italian-ish yeah. kinds of things. Um, she's always got a financier on the menu, both like we did a pistachio one recently and there's a, there's a chocolate one now. I mean, she's doing this like blueberry marigold sticky bun. Those things are really, um, fun and creative. We like to do things that are accessible and, um, inviting, but still kind of nothing you would you know, and curious, nothing you would make at home or you might see somewhere else. It's like, Jason, you just articulated like the special sauce for a, a successful restaurant is familiarity and accessibility, but obviously high minded and high end cooking quality. The plating, the service, I think your service is excellent. Just like really engaging. What about on the, on the non pastry side? What are you doing right now? Um, okay. So now it's, uh, it's an, uh, full tomato season, you know, it it was late this year. And I mean, outside right now, it's like in the 90s. Yeah. So the, the hot weather is really making a great car- crop right now. So we ha- and plums are out at the same time. So what I'd like to do is like, you know, bring together um, ingredients that sort of are happening at the same time. Tomato and plum is a, is a great example of that. Uh, and then bring in outside flavors again, you know, maybe like, um, you know, uh, a, a chili or for beer chili or a hazelnut or, you know, a salty cheese like ricotta salada or something like that. And so those are the kinds of dishes that we're working on now. Um, and, you know, also thinking about the transition to fall, we get great like yellow uh, cherry tomatoes from Froggy Meadow Farm in, um, in Wisconsin. Uh, and they're sort of like cusping now and on the way out. So we're thinking about doing some dishes that bring in some fall elements, like some darker, heartier greens with uh, cherry tomatoes. So that's something as soon as I get back into uh, my kitchen in Chicago that I'm going to be working on this week. Yeah. It, it, it's really, you've articulated, it's a very, very Italian rooted in terms of the seasonality. Um, and, I, and the cookbook too taps into a lot of the recipes, obviously for the history. Let's get into that. But first, I cannot forget to talk to you about Halloween. I feel like Lula was always kind of at the focus of food media, going back many years. 
Because on Halloween, on, on October 31st, every year, many years, you would transform your restaurant into a new restaurant. Yeah. It would be a costume for the restaurant. Let's go over Absolutely. a few of those. I, I mean, uh, I, we, we gave it up a while back when other people started doing it, but there was a period <laughs> of incredible um, event, series of events. Some of the favorites, um, we had Taco Hell with <laughs> uh, Rick Bayless. Yeah. Um, so we transformed into a Taco Bell from hell, uh, and Rick dressed up as the devil and had a megaphone and was like calling out number orders. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Remember um, that. the violent hour, um, we invited all the top mixologists at the time. Shout out to the violet hour, of course. The violet hour. In sh- and if you know the violet hour in Chicago, you know, they have a big, um, sort of like empty, uh, storefront, which they have artists do murals on. We actually built a wall in front of Lula and painted a mural uh, on this uh, on this wall in front. Uh, again, that was uh, it was it was amazing. I yeah. mean, we've done Olive Garden kind of things. Yeah. I mean, it's been a it, it was a really it was really fun. Yeah, it's really memorable. And, and do you think you'll bring it back ever? Again? I don't know. One thing that we did do in st- uh, at the same time is uh, we started giving out. This is a little bit more like family friendly. We started giving out cookies and cider uh, and to an impromptu parade that uh, happened in Logan Square. Um, the first year there were like ten kids and their families, and we've had upwards of like seven or eight thousand people go through. I don't know. I don't know if it's that many people, but it's certainly yeah. that many cookies. Um, so every year we make like, uh, about 8,000 cookies and hand them out to this parade. That's sort of like a completely DIY, oh my like, gosh. uh, civic, like, you know, piece of joy. It's a, it's an amazing thing that happens every Halloween. Yeah. Listener, we're dropping this in the fall. Like let's get to Chicago in the fall. It's a, it's really a beautiful time to be there. It is. Yeah. Apple it, picking and all. Apple picking and all. Okay. So let's talk about the cookbook. Uh, you had a task because you're writing the restaurant cookbook and you've got 24 years of history. So Jason, tell me, what did you really want to get down here in the cookbook and also like the essays and the writing you did too? I'm um, for me, um, recipes aren't, I'm the kind of person who thinks recipes are not there and they're not designed to replicate something perfectly. They're there to invite people into an experience. Um, and for me, um, recipes, can can be about or mostly about memory, and so every one of these recipes is stamped with a day, a, a day, the day it was created. And at Lula, we we do dishes, um, and then we don't do them again. We have a core group of five or six dishes, what we call our cafe menu, that were on our OG uh, menu, you know, in the '90s, and then the the majority of the menu is just ever changing, constantly evolving. And so what I wanted to present was like the, that ethos, just like cooking with the seasons, but also just sort of cooking improvisationally. And so the writing, um, I wanted to connect to that, uh, that sense. And I really just wanted to do something evocative. I want the kind of cookbook where when you read the header and you read the introduction, you read the little bit about spices or whatever I'm writing about, like the prose is beautiful and you, you feel like, you know, like enlivened by the sentences Mm -hmm. as much as uh, the idea of what's behind them. I share the sentiment about cookbooks, and I really recommend our listeners pick up the book and buy it because it really is well written. It has a lot of prose that is not just throwaway head notes. Um, Was there a single recipe, going back to recipes, that you really wanted to get down and crack the code for? Was there something that you worked on a lot in your kitchen? Um, There, I mean, there 
there are there are several. Um, the one that I think about a lot is um, this dish that's on our regular menu, which is called pasta yaya. Yeah. Um, and it's not my recipe; it's my wife's family recipe. It's a little bit of a tricky recipe to do. I'm going to be honest. Like, it, there's some brown butter. You know, there's brown butter. There's a little bit of a this feta sauce that. But the, the key thing about this pasta is that it's. Uh, the ingredients are simple. There's feta, there's brown butter, there's garlic, and there's cinnamon. Yeah. And the cinnamon Mm. is the ingredient common to a lot of Greek cooking. Yeah. That, to me, is the sort of, like, evocative, poetic part of this. Hmm. And the way that the cinnamon interacts with the brown butter is also, like, evocative and unusual and curious. And that's the thing that makes me want to cook. Like, the thing that makes me that uh, sort of, like, the surprise element, the 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 hidden like secret ingredient that like sort of comes up and makes you um, engage with the dish in a new way and that dish even though it's a traditional one is sort of the the template for all the other kinds of cooking we've done like you know like solid technique you know um, history tradition and then like some kind of unique twist, twist. yeah like, that, um, that intrigue yeah that that gives you intrigue and surprise and makes you like you know just awaken the senses yeah. Well said. I, I, we we often forget about the last recipe in cookbooks, and and we have many authors in, and we we would like to we like to figure that out. So in the back of your book, the very last recipe is a carrot it's cake a carrot recipe. Cake. So let's give that credit right now, and let's give it some props. Why are we Absolutely. making this carrot cake? Okay. So uh, again, like Lula has a history. Um, we were buying this carrot cake for a long time when we first opened the cafe because we really didn't have a baking program or really a kitchen or an oven to cook in. Um, and then when I finally made it to a place where I could have a pastry chef, I was like, I want to do this kind of thing, but our own version. Mm. And it's a kind of carrot cake without a lot of, um, it's sort of like elegant and simple and, um, and pure carrot. It's not a lot of, um, you know, there are no nuts and there's no coconut and there's nothing sort of getting in the way of this carrot cake. But then every one of my pastry chefs over the last 20 years has changed it just a little bit. So I love the fact that like this thing that like has been on the menu the whole time, it gets uh, it gets the, you know, the variations every time a new pastry chef comes mm-hmm. to work with us for however many years. Oh, my gosh. And it's been through these iterations. So this is one iteration of it um, that I'm really proud of that Kim uh, Janice did. Um, and it's, you know, again, like sort of a musical note repeating, but in a new way every time. Really well said. I love that this evolution of a single dish. And I feel like you've given me a story idea. I think we're going to write about it and taste. It's wonderful to hear that because I'm sure many restaurants that have been around for 20 years have that single recipe that's changed over time. Uh, before we get to our, our final section, I want to just get some a sense of Chicago. Our listeners, um, uh, get out your pad and pen because this is the time. Where should we be, we be going in Chicago? You mentioned Kasama. I cannot recommend that higher, but there's probably other restaurants you can. I mean, Kasama is an amazing restaurant. Yeah, and they do, uh, and it is amazing. Great friends of ours um, and great members of the community. Uh, I mentioned Obelique's. Yep. Um, and but I'm going to just shout out my neighborhood for a little while. Yeah. Um, and especially, like, call attention to some Lula alums. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got Jason Vincent of Giant, um, who was uh, the OG sous chef at Lula back in the day. 
Uh, Best New Chef from like 2006 or something or uh, eight. Yeah, uh, and at Nightwood Restaurant. Yeah, I was, went there twice. Did you go to Nightwood? I did, and, and I know Jason. It's been a while. I should reconnect with him. That's, yeah. That was our restaurant. That was our, you know, our second restaurant, and Jason was the chef there. That's cool. I, I didn't re- make that connection. Yeah, yeah I definitely so, went to Nightwood a couple times. So amazing. Yeah. Um, so as Giant uh, and Chef Special uh, in the neighborhood, uh, Middlebrow Pizza. Pete and Polly, they do Middlebrow beer. They have a brewery there, and they're also the first like natural winemaker in the area, um, growing you know from uh, Michigan grapes. Um, they do a great sort of Neapolitan style, uh, naturally uh, fermented pizza. Very cool uh, to not mention Tavern Pie on this podcast in Chicago they, Pizza. Uh, they do do a tavern <laughs> night at Middlebrow. Good so, to know. Tuesday nights there, it is It is very good. Oh, I love Tavern. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I, just, yeah. I just feel like we talk about it at length and always. Yeah, they, they do it on Tuesdays. Yeah. Uh, Low Flounge, I mentioned earlier. Yep. Ben and Sarah, also former Lula alums up the street, do have like a sandwich shop with a great baking, baking program. Um, so those are some shout outs to some of my favorite places in the, in the hood. Do you, uh, help stake some of these restaurants when they're launching? Do you, do you participate in a way like as a, as a partner in any of that? Um, I, I'm saving kind of best for last. Um, I did do that. I have, I have done that in the past. Um, my most, uh, you know, most recent, uh, partnership is with, uh, Zishan and Yoshi of Superkana International. Uh, they're doing this sort of like fun, irreverent take on Indian food just up the street from us. So Superkana is a great place. I've not yeah. been there. I, yeah, this is absolutely. new to me. Yep. A new pick. So. And I'm a partner there. I appreciate you sharing. Jason, on This Is Taste, we ask guests about the discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a fast and furious rapid fire taste check. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. The best AM pastry with coffee. Um, uh, a, a butter croissant or a cannelle. The best dessert, period. Oh, I'm going to say anything with meringue in it. I'm a huge meringue freak. Underrated. Everyone goes for the lemon, but not the meringue. I'm just like anything with meringue. I'm on it. You know what I mean? What what makes good meringue? Let's go there. Um, I mean, obviously, it's it's technique. (laughs) There's nothing in it besides egg whites, right? I mean, it's just the technique and, uh, and the care that goes into good meringue. The best bread. Oh, the breast bread. I want to shout out um, Publican in uh, in my city. That's where we buy our bread. Yeah. Greg Wade is a is a master. Yeah, that guy's beard nominee. Yeah, very much so. Okay, so the best Chicago only food. This is a food that or has origins in Chicago. Well, I'm going to say the tavern pizza. I mean, come on. We just talked about that a yeah. second ago, and and everyone's going to say. Uh, uh, a Chicago beef, but like I'm not from Chicago. No. I'm from New Haven, Connecticut, and I'm saying pizza. So uh, I, I gotta call it the tap pizza. <laughs> I said that very quickly. <laughs> New Haven is overrated. No, no. Oh the my Chicago god, beef. I right. feel like any yeah, beef sandwich yeah. is is overrated. Not a great New Haven pizza is not overrated. No, it's definitely not. So the best Midwest only food. So it doesn't have to be just Chicago, but it's like all the Midwest is a food that you only find in the Midwest. What's the best one? I mean, can I actually just give you a product? Yeah, like a, that's an perfect. Ingredient. Yeah, because I mentioned it earlier, but the green, the green hemrod grapes from Michigan are probably one of the best pieces of fruit in the United States. Where do they grow? Do you know? Um, I mean, I, we buy ours from Klug Farm, uh, and uh, that's in you know right off the water there. Yeah. Um, so I. I, I'm sure you can find them in several places, but you have to be really, I mean, the, the season is super short. It's like a week long wow. and they're green and they're just, they're gorgeous and sweet. And they have all sorts of like 
I don't know. They have all sorts of yeasty notes. They're an amazing product. Can you, make, can you go to Klug Farm? Is, do they have a farm 100, stand? Yeah, you can go there. All right. Mark that down. Put Klug, that in Google yep. Maps. The absolute essential bottle of booze to have on hand. Man. I mean, I'd say Aperol or Capari or something that are like that for sure. Absolutely. The most underrated piece of kitchen equipment. Spoon. The correct spoon for the correct, the correct, you know, plating or basting or service or whatever, not using the wrong spoon, which is, you know, a pet peeve of mine. Do you think we use too large of spoons for certain I tests? I think we use too large and we certainly use too small for too many, small, many, for many sure. cases. I feel like in the home kitchen, we don't have enough large spoons. I agree with that. Yeah, there needs to be like a set of like 20 large spoons that you can buy for like $40. I, 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 okay, we're going business we're together. We're going right there, you that. and I, business together. Okay, yeah. the most overrated piece of kitchen equipment. I think the most overrated is a one that can be useful to for in some circumstances, but people use it for the wrong thing, which is the sharpening steel. I can't tell you how many people are like, oh, this knife can't cut. I'm going to go to the sharpening steel. There's no, there's no knife to begin with. You can't sort of sharpen with a steel. Um, you know, steels are for honing. It's not a honing, for sharpening. Yeah. yeah. The honing rod. And, and I see that all the time. And it drives me crazy. Yeah, it's not going to really get you there. You got to like actually take it out and they put it into a sharpening tool yeah. or, or on a, like a steel, like a brick or whatever. The, the yeah, but I mean, you could go into my mom's kitchen and find 50 overrated uh, kitchen, yeah. kitchen appliances and things that she's bought, you know, on late night TV. So there are a lot of things out there. Yeah. Your favorite cookbook of all time? Zuni. Yeah. I mean, the book that I wrote now, I mean, that, that was where I had my, that was sort of my, you know. Um, North just Star. Just North Star, like the, the, you know, the wise chef on the hill. I, I uh, you know, R.I.P. Judy Rogers. Yeah. I, that book is so well written um, and so thorough. And the story and the introduction is just incredibly evocative. And, and I'll never forget it. I love that book and anything Elizabeth David wrote. Yeah, you said that earlier. I love that call. Is there a favorite recent cookbook discovery? A favorite recent cookbook? I mean, I think the Estella book is one of the great books of the last, you know, what has it been, five years? Yeah. Um, same with Jessica Koslow's book. Um, I think the Wilder book is also one of the great books of the last five years, just from from pure discovery and uh excitement of the cooking and, and the recipes in that book. And really written for the chef. I yeah, feel absolutely. That, wild that one is a, is a chef book. It is so chef But then Jeremy Fox on vegetables. Yeah, Jeremy Fox. That, I, I go to that one still. I mean, back to the while there, Allison Roman wrote it with those guys. That was a cool, that's a cool it's book. It's a cool, cool book. Very cool. Yeah, I love Fight, that you It's a fighting book. Yeah, it is a fighting book. Um, the last question, your favorite sandwich. My favorite sandwich is... Okay. I love a tuna melt. And I know that that, I, I don't know if anybody else feels that way, but I love the diners, the East Coast diner experiences that I had when I was a kid. My dad was a the kind of guy who ate maybe 10 meals a week at the, you know, Acropolis or the Athenian New Haven. Um, and uh, that was my go-to when I was a kid. I don't, I'm not saying that's the best sandwich, and it's certainly a risky sandwich. It sure is. Uh, yeah. Very risky. But when I was a kid, I didn't know better. And, I, you know, nostalgia is everything. Warm tuna, man. Yeah, I know. I know. Polarizing food stuff. I, I'm sorry. I just had to pick it. As, I love I mean, it. I was a dumb kid, and <laughs> that's what I that's what I gravitated to. I, I like to call it. It is a personal pick, and all these choices are personal. Jason Hamill, thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. I appreciate you.
Hey, Matt, should we talk about three things? What's going on? Uh, not much. I went to a really cool event last night at INSA. This will be my first thing. Yeah. Uh, it's an event that Tables of Contents was doing, which is the literary arts nonprofit that my cake scene co-editor, Tanya Bush, does pastry for. It's run by Evan Hanker, who does Little Egg, the restaurant that Tanya's pastry chef at. And I'd actually never been to one of their events before, which makes me feel like kind of a bad friend. But I <laughs> love the concept so much. They have a different book every month, a contemporary author, and they have a book that's related to food in some way, and then they cook a meal that's inspired by it. And last night was really cool. It was a double feature with Riverhead Books. It was Brian Washington with his new book, Family Meal, and then Si Pem Zhang with her book, Land of Milk and Honey, that I talked about on the podcast recently. So it was really fun to get to go to that event and like eat some of the food that was inspired uh, by both of the books. What a thoughtful... Uh, I saw on Instagram, I was like, man, it's a great event. And Evan's been on the show, and of course, Tony has as well. And I, I'm glad you're calling it out. And, and was there a dish that was able to connect back to the one of the books uh, that was served? Yeah, well, they all connected. I have not read Family Meal yet, so the ones that were related to Land of Milk and Honey were yeah. hitting for me more, and I was fangirling over how much I loved yeah. that book. And Tanya did a dessert that was inspired by uh, actually a passage that I read aloud to Pam when we were talking about it on the show. Uh, it happens when the chef goes to this reclusive mountaintop institute to cook for the elite. She's given a test to make <laughs> for them, and it's uh, ingredients to make strawberry shortcake. And in the book, she somehow lets the compote burn and it's a huge problem. And so Tanya did a strawberry shortcake that was inspired by this passage that had just fresh strawberry, strawberry compote, and then a black sesame strawberry, like quote unquote tar to symbolize the charred compote, um, which was really delicious and kind of like a really thoughtful connection. So that was maybe my favorite. Wow, what a, what a great lineup. And and let's like talk about those in advance and get people out to those those events if we can. Yeah. We'll link to it in the, in the newsletter. Yeah, yeah, and now I have Brian's book, so I'm really excited to read it because there's so many um, food moments in it. So maybe it'll be fun to talk to him on the cool. podcast too. Great. What's your first thing? I went to Asheville this weekend. So I went to a really cool food festival, the Chow Chow Festival. I participated um, and moderated a couple panels and was able to catch up with my my friend Marwan Arani and the crew from Chaipani and just hang out and, and hear about what's all the exciting things, what's happening in their world. And, man, you know, stay tuned for some cool things happening in that land. But I was able to um, meet – I met this guy, Luis Martinez, and uh, he runs Tecchio Foods. And he is um, a really prominent um, masa uh, and corn importer from uh, Oaxaca, where he's from. And he was amazing. I want Luis to come into the studio, and I can't wait to like have a more extensive conversation with him. But we really got to talk about um, what his his life was in his journey uh, from Mexico to the United States. And um, so that was great. And just like the whole tone of the event was really local Asheville, um, local chefs and community coming together and talking about um, Appalachian foodways. That sounds so cool. I wish I was there. Yeah, it was really exciting. And, and honestly, the kelp pakoras at Chaipani still like hit really hard. So that's like the number one dish for me. Cool. So good. What's your next one? My next one is that I just read uh, Ruth Reichel's latest memoir, Save Me the Plums, that I had not read previously. And when I was in Seattle recently at Book Larder, I picked it up and... You know, I worked at Condé Nast for a while, so I could relate 
in some ways to the experience of working at a food publication at Condé and then in other <laughs> ways hearing about, you know, the budget that they had and yeah. uh, all of her car allowances. Different era. Allowances. Yeah, a different era of Condé. But I loved reading it so much. And I think the way that she wrote about the experience of being in a test kitchen, especially, and that process of testing recipes and the kind of communal dynamic between art and food and editorial really um, made me like nostalgic for my coworkers when I was at BA, which was such a big food magazine to be at. Um, so I think from like my insider perspective, I would say that it really like held up and it was so great. It's a great book. I've read it. I read it like really right when it came out. And, and Ruth is a, is a, has been on the show a bunch of times. I, I love this book. So I'm glad you called it out. Yeah, she's a legend. I have Absolutely. to. And she has a new novel coming out next spring. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, we'll talk about that. What's your next thing? Um, my friend Helen Rosner is reviewing restaurants again for The New Yorker. And I'm a big fan of this move by her and her bosses to get her into restaurants and giving commentary about not just like the restaurant, what's on the plate, but the culture around it. And I like the framing of her early reviews. Um, she did a round about three perfect chocolate cakes in New York City. One is the black and white seven-layer cake at Gertrude's in Brooklyn. Have you made it over there yet? I haven't made it over there yet. It's from the Gertie's folks, right? Gertie's, Eli Sussman's the chef. And I was able to eat this cake uh, about a month ago, and it is for two on the menu. They say cake for two. That's a whole thing now. Did she do—I didn't read this review yet. Did she talk about— Claude's giant cake as one of them. Yeah, also. I think so. That was the yeah. other one. Um, I frankly forget the other two because I have been reading a lot of things, including her other reviews, which um, I think the one I read and really devoured was her assessment of Scars, the new Scars pizzeria in uh, downtown New York. And um, I've just like love Helen's writing, you know, not just because it's very, um, very fluid and natural, but she always has something cool to, to bring to the table and say about restaurant culture. So, yeah. And she was at the tables of contents event after oh, yeah. that last night also. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's cool. She, maybe she'll write about it for a review. Maybe. maybe. Yeah. I like, I like it a lot. And I, I'm just like really happy to see what's happening at the New Yorkers food section. I know Hannah Goldfield is evolving her role in a cool way and they haven't quite announced what that's going to be, but I feel like the New Yorker should be really like one of the main food media outlets um, in our country. What's your next thing? My last thing is kind of an endorsement for when I was just camping in Oregon. Um, We had a lot of beer, as you do in your camping, and we wanted to keep it cold, but we had limited cooler space. So we were camping off the river and we pulled all of these rocks into a little circle to keep them from floating away. And then we just (laughs) had our beers in the river and it was not a new idea, but to me like the most perfect like summer camping, camping in general vibe of using nature as your cooler. So I just kind of (laughs) wanted to share that with everyone. It's, It's a good tip and we can camp like longer into the fall, I think. Yeah, for sure. And it's honestly another version of using the snow outside to keep your drinks cold in the winter when you're um, maybe somewhere cozy or cold and camping. Yeah, so it was great. And I had some fun beers to put in there. I had a beer that is called Fanta that looks exactly like a Fanta can. Oh, cool. But We're called Fanta. Fanta. Yeah. <laughs> which I think was just so funny and it was good beer. I you love know? it. What's it, your last thing? Last thing is we are going to be going on a, a trip to Texas in the coming weeks. And we have a bunch of plans. I went down um, and with Travel Texas and was able to visit uh, Austin, Houston, and San Antonio. Uh, so check this space for those great segments that will be airing. But I want to call it Birdie's in Austin. Birdie's blew me away. It was like probably one of my favorite restaurants in the past couple of years. Um, and 
stay tuned for a, a pretty re- detailed review of that meal. But what I want to say is leaving your pasta strudel in the dining room is like the most baller move ever. Was it being used while you were there? Or it was just there. Well, it's there because they don't have a lot, like a lot of space. Uh huh. Though I kind of think like maybe it's there because it's there because it looks. It's like a total like it's not. It's new, but like the the panel of it is like in the color of the Italian flag, <laughs> and it's like just got great industrial design happening there. And it's just nice to see that, yeah, yes, we are making pasta fresh at this restaurant that isn't like an Italian restaurant per se. It's more, it's it's cool. It's like a counter uh, service fancified version of it. So Yeah, that's a cool move. It kind of reminds me of when I went to Combi's Culver City location before that closed. I saw that they had their laminator for the croissants just out. Maybe it was just in like stored in the restaurant at that point in time. But I feel like it's it's nice when you're showing people right away, like this is something we're investing in and you can see it in our dining room. Do you know, Eliza, that we've written an article specifically about that laminator at um, Combi? Yeah, I think I do know that. <laughs> Sorry. But, but uh, it's worth re-mentioning because it is an insane <laughs> laminator. It is. A, it is a little bit. Yeah. And, and R.I.P. Combi. But um it's nice to show your gear. It's it's like a fun little part of the trick, especially or, when it has the Italian flag on it. Yeah, it's a cool it's a cool thing. Uh, and Tracy will be on the show soon. Oh, one of the chefs there, and we'll hear all about it. But uh, thanks for sharing your three things. Yeah, you too. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.